Now, a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. It can be tough to train your brain to stay in problem-solving mode when you're faced with any challenges that life poses. But when you learn how to find your own solutions to any problems you may face, there's really no better feeling. And if you want to become better at solving any problems you may encounter, then one way you can do so is by using a therapist who can help you on your way, helping you to accomplish the goals you may have, no matter how big or how small they may be. I've found personally, when I've had time to need myself or any problems I've faced in the past, that talking to a professional has been nothing but a benefit and has really helped me out. It's given me that clarity to see head-on exactly what the issue is and instead of worrying about it, has made me focus on the solution and not just the problem. So, if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, then BetterHelp is a great option for you. For not only is it convenient and accessible, because it's entirely online, it's also more affordable than other therapy, and you can begin almost immediately, just after filling out a brief survey. Before you know it, you could be matched with a therapist that best suits your needs, and if you feel it's necessary, you can simply switch therapists at any time. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com TCE today to get 10% off your first month. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash T-C-E. Hello all, and the warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Where each time around from my spare room in North Wales, I strive to bring you those tales of true crime that you may not be too familiar with, that you may find unbelievable or horrific, from the darkest recesses of the UK and Ireland. Doing so is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. The mog that sleeps like a log, Pixie, the true crime enthusiast cat, is here with me as he always is. And completing us are you lot, the enthusiasts without whom there is no show. Simple as that. It's as wonderful as it always is having you joining me in the MOG today, which I thank you so kindly for doing so. And I do hope that as you join us, then you do so with you and yours, all good, all safe and all well. So before we crack on with the tale then, I want to say big thanks to everybody who has attended myself, Mike from Murder Miles and Adam from the UK True Crimes live shows to date. The one we did in Manchester the other night was an absolute blast. So great to see old friends and make new ones as well. So thank you very much all. Keep your eye out for more dates coming soon. Thank you also goes here to both the returning and new Patreon supporters of The Enthusiast, with shout-outs here for Deirdre Allen, Adam Stanmore, Marianne Fox, Wayne Kennedy, Stephanie Fortune, Daniel Fry, Leslie Cairns, Elizabeth and Richard Brown, plus Andy Ogden, look out for a collaboration between myself and Andy Ogden and uh, another, another show very soon, Nightshift Nathan, Samantha Laurie and Brett Spurden who've each opted to annually support the show. Massive thanks out to you all for doing so. It's so very, very kind of you to do and it does mean the world, honestly, it really does. Now I have for the past couple of months been tied up with a Lost Boys arc but I have gotten a new Patreon episode out in that time because one does come each month and if you would like for yourselves a whole series of unreleased enthusiasts or perhaps even some show swag coming from me, then like Daredevil watching porn, it's not hard at all, and it costs less than Homer Simpson spends on hair product. 
it's just the True Crime Enthusiast podcast over on Patreon. Always remember that podcast suffix. Or the link is always in the episode show notes that will take you right to it. Before you know it, you can be hearing the tales behind episodes such as Sanctuary, Wicked Beyond Belief, or The Samaritan and the Salvationist, to name just a few. With the latest one, you deserve a medal for that. Now up and running, and a new one due out each month, as I explained before. Right, back to the business in hand then. Now this part of the Lost Boys arc does find us on the home stretch, I'm sure you'll be glad to know. But just a quick recap. We've heard the heartbreaking tales of Jason Swift, Barry Lewis and Mark Tilsley. We've heard how Jason's killers were apprehended and we've heard how the confessions of one of them created a separate and quite remarkable inquiry which ultimately led to a semblance of justice for both Barry and Mark also. The tale overall to date I'm sure has been a difficult one to listen to that will have shocked, angered, horrified and broken your heart. Well, no, I know it has been. You should have tried researching and writing it. I have explained in an online post how the arc will continue to pan out and how I shall bring it to a close. And upcoming in the next segment, I'll update as to how the families of the boys we've mentioned so far continued in the years after the court proceedings. But this time around, and the next, for I can't do this segment in a single hit, it would work out longer than the list of reasons I despise those involved here, and it would be too much monster for a listen really. Plus I don't really want to tarnish the family's tales interspersed with discussing individuals such as I will here. Because this network of child abuse is so far reaching that no one could ever possibly know how many exactly are involved and how deep the network goes, like a cancer. And because there are several who have never been named and never faced charges based on the tales you've heard, I've decided to focus on those that have been identified and have faced a semblance of justice for their crimes, as well as updating the tales of those we've come to meet so far throughout The Lost Boys. It's time to meet the monsters. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events involving children that some listeners may find extremely disturbing and or distressing. So please use caution and discretion whilst listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast for the sixth part of The Lost Boys and for an episode I've entitled First of the Monsters. Now, in a previous episode, I told you how the confessions of Leslie Bailey were subsequently seized upon by Sidney Cook, Stephen Barrell and Robert Oliver to appeal against the sentences they received following their prosecution over the murder of Jason Swift, and indeed successfully resulting in a reduction off the sentences of Cook and Barrell, though Oliver's appeal was dismissed. Exactly why this was and the other two weren't is unsure. But you have to start with someone, and so I shall with Robert Oliver. Born in North London on the 2nd of October 1954, as the only son of five children, him being the youngest and with no father present, Oliver's mother hated having a son so much that she'd refused completely to dress him in boys' clothing, and instead constantly dressed him in his sister's hand-me-down clothes, complete with white socks and even bunches in his hair. Now, 
complete with him being overweight and his naturally effeminate voice. The bullying at school when he turned up like this was so constant and intense because of this. I mean, can you imagine? That his teachers and the parents of other school children even offered to club together to buy him an outfit, which they eventually did, putting a stop to it. But who knows what lasting consequences this already had for his mind, however. For reportedly, even up to his arrest over the murder of Jason Swift, he still liked to periodically dress as a woman, answering to the name Susan Ward. Unsurprisingly, he performed poorly in school and left without gaining even any basic literary or compositional skills. By age 14, Oliver accepted he was homosexual and began hanging out in London's West End, soon working as a rent boy around Piccadilly Circus and Victoria Station, but known somewhat delightfully as the Meat Rack. Yeah, sounds pretty horrendous, eh? He said years later, The people who interfered with me loved me more than my own mother. I felt safer with them. It's a hell of a statement, isn't it? Now Oliver finally left the unhappy sounding family home for good at age 17 after an argument with his mother about his sexuality. And although he did manage to hold down a few manual jobs, including towel delivery to hotels and working in a sweet factory, he had soon turned to crime, amassing five burglary convictions by the time he was 20 in 1975, around the same time that he first met one Lenny Smith. Two years later, in 1977, he landed a four-year prison sentence for gross indecency after sexually abusing a 13-year-old boy, along with three others. Released early from this sentence, Oliver was again in prison in 1981, this time receiving a year after being convicted of intent to commit buggery on two children aged 9 and 14. By the time he was released from this sentence, the overweight, illiterate and unemployed Oliver was soon moving from flat to flat, lodging in different places in Hackney and living periodically with each individual you've come to learn of so far. A man with little prospect whatsoever, who had never grown up and could neither read nor write. Oliver was unconcerned about this and was indeed simply happy enough being who he was because he'd never known otherwise. Instead. Instead of developing any beneficial social skills, he was content developing and honing the only skill he did have, communicating with children, for they were on the same wavelength, but for the most nefarious purposes there was, as we've heard. Although he was detested in prison and attacked several times, Oliver, who had by that time changed his name to Oliver Lee, served less than nine years for his role in Jason's death, and even though specialists had judged him to be, I quote, a sexual deviant with a personality disorder, Oliver was released from Wandsworth Prison, which is dubbed Pervert's Palace, by the way, for the amount of sex offenders it holds, on the 25th of September 1997, but to a less than warm reception. He was driven two miles to Clapham Junction Railway Station where he met his friend, David Harvey, whom he'd known for 20 years and had planned to stay with at his Kentish Town flat. But when it was discovered this had been the plan, 
there was a wave of outrage and a crowd of angry neighbours gathered outside the flat and frightened him away. Three fathers even tried to force their way inside, shouting, If you don't get him out here, we'll burn him out. Now, to which Harvey shouted back from behind his locked front door, He's not here, he's gone out of London. If you want to come and search the flat, you'll see he's not here. A neighbour and father of two, Paul Jones, said, I'm appalled. I would have thought the police would warn us about this man. There are loads of kids around here, and there's even a play centre on the estate. It's disgusting that a monster like that could be let near our kids. I'll be on extra alert in case he dares to come back. Now you'll see this to be a recurring theme. Michael Haynes, a child protection consultant and former head of Scotland Yard's Obscene Publications Department, warned, Oliver is a predatory paedophile who was killed. Rather than protect him, people everywhere should be aware he is out of prison and at large. Paedophiles cannot be cured and they are addicted to child sex. Now, Oliver was forced to move around constantly. He went straight from Kentish Town to an address in Swindon in Wiltshire, but he was forced to leave almost immediately when a repeat of what had drove him there happened. Neighbours, furious and horrified at having such a monster in their midst, protested strongly enough that he was moved again, this time back to East London, where he was placed into a Salvation Army hostel in Whitechapel on October the 2nd. He lasted just five days here before the same thing happened yet again, and after attempting to alter his appearance, made his way to Liverpool, where he caught a ferry and headed for Dublin, the appeal being that at the time, there was no equivalent to the British paedophile register in the Republic. However, when he arrived by ferry in Dublin port and booked into a hostel in the city centre, the already alerted Garda sent a detective to speak to him. Though Garda sources made it clear that the force had no powers to order him to leave the state, when Oliver realised that the Garda was aware he was there, and that his movements in the state might be tracked, he decided to return to the UK, heading first to Manchester, where he was soon hounded out again and given his train fare out of the city to wherever he wished this time deciding to head down to Brighton. Retired Chief Superintendent Mike Lewis of Sussex Police said for a BBC Panorama programme at the time, My detective Chief Inspector received a telephone call from colleagues in Greater Manchester to say that he was on his way. I have to say, we didn't exactly say thank you for that phone call. Oliver was immediately placed under police surveillance when he arrived in Brighton, not just to ensure that he didn't attack any local children, but to protect him from vigilante action if his location became known. Yet conversely, police and social services took the unusual step of revealing publicly that Oliver had moved into the Brighton area, adding that in their view, he presented a significant threat to the safety of young men and boys in the area. After a crisis meeting with social services, education and probation representatives, the police decided to alert residents using new powers provided by the Sex Offenders Act 1977. 
a detective inspector visited Oliver at his hostel to warn him about his conduct, and 25,000 leaflets, signed by the Director of Social Services and the Director of Education from Brighton and Hove, were distributed, reading as follows. You will have heard on national and local radio and television that Robert Oliver, date of birth 2-10-1954, has moved to Brighton and Hove. His pattern of behaviour in the past has been to procure young boys for other paedophiles, and he is likely to target vulnerable youngsters. Areas such as amusement arcades and the Palace Pier are high risk. We therefore advise you to exercise all the usual protective measures to ensure the safety of your children and to notify the police immediately of any suspicious incidents or if any child is missing, even for a short time. The round-the-clock surveillance on Oliver observed him visiting a children's library and watching youngsters in Brighton amusement arcades and on the beach. Awful activities that, however concerning they were to see, they were powerless to prevent. Marie Corrigan, mother of a four-year-old son, summed up local residents' feelings and concerns about this, saying, Can you think of anything more worrying? All of us feel angry about this. We simply don't feel safe. This man must go. I don't care where he goes to, as long as he goes away from here. Now as controversy surrounding his freedom grew, Oliver felt the heat himself, and eventually asked police for protection. He was placed in voluntary custody in a secure police accommodation in Sussex, where he was watched over by two officers 24 hours a day, and he spent most of his time on his bed in his cell watching television and generally amusing himself in that way. Oliver was to spend four months here at a cost of some £500,000, for that is how long it took Sussex police to find him suitable accommodation. The probation service made hundreds of phone calls trying to place Oliver somewhere, even to Broadmoor, where officials from came down to assess him and deemed him unsuitable for there. And that's got to be saying something, hasn't it, if you can't get yourself into Broadmoor. But all without success, there simply wasn't an answer. Though Oliver was dangerous, he wasn't legally insane or curable. And though technically he was a free man, the public would not tolerate him in any community without considerable restraints around him because of the notoriety he brought upon himself. Eventually, a place was found for Oliver at a medium-secure psychiatric unit called Blenheim House in Milton Keynes in Buckinghamshire, where he went voluntarily at a cost to taxpayers of £320 per day. It happened also to be less than 20 miles away from Northampton, where Jason Swift's cousin Emma then lived. When Emma Swift heard the news, she said, understandably, I just sat and cried my eyes out. I couldn't believe that he was literally half an hour up the road from my hometown. It's like rubbing the family's nose in it. I just couldn't believe it. Because he went in voluntarily, he can actually walk out any time he pleases. Which is true. Oliver was to spend more than a year here before in July 1999, he was moved to a controversial newly created unit at Nottingham Prison, 
set up to house sex offenders who have served their term but are deemed to remain a threat to society. The second released paedophile to be housed there. All residents were made to sign unique tenancy agreements which offer them the protection of accommodation within prison walls and free gas and electricity, but in return for the loss of certain rights, for example, being kept under constant observation and on a curfew between 9.30am and 9pm, with prison staff having to know from residents in advance where they were going and when they would be back. Though they were allowed access to normal phones, all calls were monitored, mobile phones and the internet were banned, along with alcohol and drugs, and any visitors had to be cleared by the jail, with no children or sex offenders allowed to see them. The prison governor also had authority to evict any residents within 24 hours if they were deemed to pose a threat to security or discipline in the prison. So even though he'd gone there voluntarily and was technically free to leave there at any time, Oliver complained bitterly about this, being recorded as saying, I'm expected to stay in a cage even though I've paid my debt to society. The goal is just unreal, isn't it, eh? Walk out, dickhead, you know, see what happens to you. Now, the decision to use the prison for such a unit had prompted a series of demonstrations in Nottingham earlier that year, including rooftop protesters who'd brought the issue to national attention. Residents in the Sherwood area of the city had also objected strongly, and some parents had even withdrawn their children from nearby schools purely for their safety. Yet the unit had gone ahead, and by the time Oliver had arrived there, he already had a resident to keep him company. His old friend and partner in crime, Lenny Smith. Yeah. How long Oliver remained here exactly is unclear, but by 2006, he was photographed walking around the area of St Paul's in Bristol, where he was then living in a bail hostel. In June of that year, it was disclosed that Oliver was being considered for a place at Wing Grange, a rehabilitation hostel for low-level offenders in Rutland, run by Langley House Trust, but which later rejected the Home Office's request for it to house Oliver, saying in a statement, Langley House Trust has decided that Mr Oliver and other offenders with a similar profile cannot be accommodated within the Trust. Mr Oliver has not agreed to the proposed restrictions. In practice, his life would be more confined than it would be in prison, and certainly greater than he is accustomed to at present. Which is kind of a posh way of saying, bugger off, we don't want you, you disgusting scumbag. Now when Oliver's rehousing plan had first become known, 300 residents of the tiny village of Wing had protested causing then-Home Secretary Jack Straw to meet with them in an attempt to allay their fears. Oliver, who was by that time 52 and had changed his name once again, this time to Francis Lee, was subsequently moved to Avon and Somerset Police Headquarters in Portishead, staying for a short time in a room for visitors in the training block at the Valley Road Headquarters before accommodation was found for him in a bungalow in Derby Way in the Somerset village of Bishop's Lydard. Just four months later, however, Oliver's whereabouts were published by the News of the World, 
and the following day his home, which was near a primary school, a playgroup and a youth football club, was surrounded by hundreds of parents waving banners reading Move the Monster after learning he was living on their estate. After some eight hours of protests, including chanting paedophiles out and kill the paedophile, about 20 police officers in riot gear were able to get Oliver out via the back door. Oliver wearing a dark hooded top and carrying a hold all. Angry residents threw eggs and shouted abuse as Oliver got into the back of a police van and was then taken away to an unknown location. This family's desperate for somewhere to live and they give a council house to him. It's disgusting, said one woman, whilst another added, Are my children not entitled to walk safely in the street and play in the area? Why should he have all the police protection? Oliver went from here to Kent, where he was to spend the next seven years without moving from the county. He lived at first at a bail hostel in Maidstone, living mainly off benefits but making some money selling toys at car boot sales, and changing his name once again, this time to Carl Curtis, even bleaching his hair blonde to try and disguise his appearance, although his location was discovered and revealed by the Sun newspaper in 2009. By two years later, he was living in a Maidstone bungalow with a partner, Colin Brock, and a sexual offences prevention order barring him from having youngsters in his home had been imposed. But Oliver was arrested in June 2013, following four counts of him breaching this order, once on May the 15th of that year, twice on June the 4th, and once on June the 6th relating to children aged between 3 and 13. Despite the 2011 order barring him from having youngsters in his home, families had unwittingly befriended the paedophile and let their children visit his bungalow in Maidstone. Oliver lavished gifts on them and would constantly ask to babysit, the parents unaware that he was once in a gang feared to have killed as many as possibly 25 youngsters. He gave one boy a birthday card and allowed another to use his toilet, and one mother who'd unknowingly befriended Oliver told how he'd given her seven-year-old daughter part of his garden to use and had spanked a 13-year-old son in play fights and given him posters of kissing and cuddling children. But one of the fathers, Michael Haywood, became suspicious of his neighbour's odd behaviour and searched his name out online. He discovered an online article from the Sun newspaper dated back from 2009 which pictured Oliver ogling children in a Maidstone shopping centre and detailed his entire sick history. Mr Hayward said later, Thank God for the Sun. Oliver had been breaching restrictions and yet none of us even knew who he was. As soon as we saw the photograph, we knew it was him and realised we had to act. I never thought I'd ever hear, I never thought I'd issue the words, thank God for the sun. As I've said in many past episodes, what an absolutely vile shit rag of a paper is all I can say. After alerting police then, Michael Hayward alerted the mum of three who had let a three-year-old daughter and a 13-year-old son into Oliver's home. The mum, who wished to remain anonymous, 
later blasted authorities for not telling locals about Oliver purely to save his privacy, saying, We trusted him, but he was grooming my kids and could have killed one of them. They could have been next. When I found out, I threw up. It chills me to the bone that I let him near my children. He was so close to us that I even left my keys with him and he offered to babysit a few times. I'm furious no one warned us. We've a right to know so we can protect our kids. Indeed, eh? Another dad of three said, Two of my children have been in his house, though thankfully not alone. Now I can see he was grooming them. He's still a danger. Oliver was arrested the following day, where he admitted the offences and was remanded in custody at Her Majesty's Prison Elmley on the Isle of Sheppey in Kent to await sentencing at Maidstone Crown Court. On July the 12th, 2013, he pleaded guilty before Judge Michael Carroll to four breaches of a sexual offences prevention order and was sentenced to three years in prison, Mr Justice Carroll telling Oliver. There was premeditation on your part in targeting children of that family. Yet by just June 2014, less than a year later, Oliver was back on the streets, released after serving less than a third of his sentence, pictured strolling amongst unsuspecting families near the bail hostel in Guildford in Surrey that he'd been released to. Sources said it appeared Oliver was freed after just 11 months because that was the normal release point of half his three-year sentence minus time spent on remand, which still doesn't mathematically add up in my book. I don't know if it does yours, but it really doesn't in mine. When the Sunday People newspaper revealed that he was living in Guildford, it prompted creation of an online petition called Put Robert Oliver Back Behind Bars which soon had gathered more than a thousand signatures, and a Facebook group called Get Robert Oliver Out of Guildford, again with support of it in the thousands. Now the petition, which gathered 1,310 supporters, is now long closed, and though the Facebook group is still up and searchable on the social media site, it's not been updated in several years. Leah Booker, a mother of three from Park Barn who had set up the Facebook page, explained at the time, I have children of my own. My first thought is, there's a paedophile roaming round and I fear for my children's safety and everyone I know around Guildford as well. It's sickening they've put him in our town and especially near where children are. It's difficult because there are so many other paedophiles we don't know about. I don't know what anyone can do. I just don't want them in my town with my children. It wouldn't concern me so much if he was moved to another town, but it would, of course, affect people in other towns. And this is the issue that will always be raised, for wherever these people are put, they will always be somewhere near to children, won't they? Understandably, you don't want someone responsible for as heinous as the crimes Oliver was responsible for living anywhere near to you, but you're simply shifting the problem elsewhere. Legally, what do you do with them? I said legally because I know, of course, what the first and most natural answer in people's minds is to. A spokesperson for Surrey Police, in an attempt to reassure residents, said, 
Surrey Police does give advice to local residents that all individuals on licence are risk assessed, monitored and supervised by the probation service, police and other agencies. However, legal restrictions prevent us from being able to comment on individual cases. Hostel staff are in direct contact with police and any breach of conditions will result in the individual being recalled to prison. But despite this, residents still remained concerned about Oliver's presence in Guildford, with one mother of three schoolchildren saying she'd shown her son a photograph of the convicted killer to alert him as to the danger Oliver brought. What I've had to do is bring evil into my home and share it with my son, she said. I can completely understand the necessity there. Now, this photograph of Robert Oliver strolling along the street without a care in the world is the last time he's been photographed to date. It's an image that I will share on the show's Instagram page, and I am aware that I haven't as yet of any of the individuals we've come to meet throughout the arc, only the most important throughout the tale, the boys that they abused and killed. I do so because this man is still out there, and I would want it to raise awareness of who he is and what he looks like. I do fear it will largely remain moot, however, as it is more than eight years old and he will have aged considerably by now. But I'll also recap some of the names Oliver has had over the years too. Oliver Lee, Oliver Cook, Robert Cook, Francis Lee, Carl Curtis, and as late as May 2020, Chris Woods, where a report claimed Oliver was then living in a hostel in Northampton. He does have a habit of changing his name, disguising and attempting to go underground, but perhaps if he changes his name again, who knows, he may use some amalgamation of these. Put them together with a picture, and if you spot anyone behaving over-friendly towards children, or hanging around them and just giving off an aura that sets the spidey sense off, you never know, it may just be Oliver, because though he can change his name and appearance, he's unable to change his predilection for children. Though he's on licence, subject to a sexual offences prevention order, and is monitored by MAPA, multi-agency public protection arrangements, through which the police, probation and prison services work together with other agencies, to manage the risks posed by violent and sexual offenders living in the community in order to protect the public. He's already flaunted this several times, recall to prison being no deterrent for him really, and it's unlikely to stop until he's caught once again, or he dies. And today, having found no record of his death, he's believed to be out there somewhere. Please, despite his age, keep your children as safe as you can. Now Northampton, where Robert Oliver was last reported, is also the last place that another individual we've met throughout the tale, Stephen Barrell, was reported as living. He was released in 1998 after serving nine years of his sentence and relocated to Northamptonshire, changing his name to Stephen Cuttings. Northamptonshire police were aware of this due to the terms of his licence, but never disclosed the information to the general public or media at that time. A court case had just established that they did have the right to disclose where a former sex offender was living, but only if there was a pressing need to do so, 
which they didn't believe there was. After all, he wasn't involved in any of the other killings that the members of the ring committed, and hadn't been charged or questioned about any offence since his release. It still doesn't sound alright really, does it? But there you go. It was the local newspaper, the Northampton Chronicle, who discovered Stephen Barrell and exposed him on the 30th of March 1998, revealing him to be living with a woman, the couple having a two-year-old child, and them renting a flat in Abington, Northampton, just two minutes from Vernon Terrace Lower School. The flat even overlooked the playground. When confronted by Chronicle reporters, Barrel, who denied manslaughter, continued to protest his innocence in the crime he'd been convicted for, saying, I just want to be left alone to get on with my life. Doesn't your heart bleed, eh? So, first there was Oliver living nearby, and then a second shock for Emma Swift, with the revelation that another of her cousin's killers was now living in her hometown. Emma, who'd founded the White Ribbon Campaign after Jason's murder, which fights for tougher sentences for offenders like Barrel, spoke of her despair after this was revealed, saying, I don't think people like him should be allowed back into the community. But his picture was now out there, splashed on the front page. Response to the story was strong and led immediately to the creation of a local campaign to keep sex killers behind bars for the rest of their lives. It also led to Barrel immediately fleeing the Northampton area to an undisclosed location, with his former neighbours speaking of the horror they felt when they realised who the man they'd been living next to really was. One young mother said, It makes me feel sick. I never liked the look of him. He was creepy. The whereabouts of Stephen Barrel, or Stephen Cutting, or Cuttings as he was last known as, are today unknown. There are also no recent photographs of him available I can share, aside from those taken from the 1980s, but which I shall of course do, because I want you to see the beasts that you've heard so many exploits of. The former tenant of 36 Ashmead House, Donald Smith, known as Uncle, is today believed to be dead, having developed cancer in the 1990s and been advanced in years back then. Due to the passage of time since then, and his age, for he would be approaching 100 if he was still alive, this is the most likely scenario here, and if so, then the air on this earth is just that little bit cleaner. As we know, Whilst he never faced prison based on charges for involvement in the murders that occurred in his flat, he did name several other individuals as a result of Operation Orchid, and one of whom was a man named Edward Goff. Goff was sure enough arrested, and soon confessed to detectives that he was in the flat the night in 1985 when Jason Swift was raped and murdered, resulting in charges relating to conspiracy to Jason's murder being raised against him. However, though he spent more than 16 months in jail awaiting trial on the indictment, and had admitted being one of the gang of paedophiles who sexually assaulted Jason, in March 1993, Goff walked free from the Old Bailey when its most senior judge, Judge Lawrence Fernie QC, ruled his confession, which the prosecution case against Goff relied wholly on, as inadmissible 
because Goff was later diagnosed as being mentally impaired and his confession to the sexual attack breaching the Police and Criminal Evidence Act. One psychologist with 30 years experience who had examined Goff whilst on remand, giving evidence to the court, rated Goff as having an IQ of just 76 or 77, putting him in the bottom 5% of the population, saying, That puts him in the borderline mentally retarded category. At the time of the crucial interview, the 10th in one day and the 15th hour, it is likely that stress and fatigue could have lowered his intelligence to the retarded range. Mr Justice Verney subsequently ruled, A person who is mentally handicapped must not be interviewed without an appropriate adult, even though the handicap was not apparent. Goff was then formally cleared of the conspiracy charge, though he was placed on probation for two years after he had admitted three unrelated domestic burglaries in Leighton in 1990 and 1991. So although we've heard it throughout the trial, and I know it's frustrating, there were so many people there with Jason and Barry who didn't face any charges, and that's quite sickening. But not all of these individuals escaped justice, however, as you'll come to see. Leslie Patrick Bailey, whose confessions were the genesis of all the charges being raised, was born in Hackney on the 21st of June 1953, where he, his brother Paul and his sister June were brought up by his mother Lillian in a broken home. By the time of his arrest, Bailey had not seen his father for 27 years. Most of Bailey's childhood was spent in care, and he lived in council boarding schools in Surrey and also at Great Ongar, which was to have certain significance many years later. Schools for the educationally subnormal. He had an IQ of just 74, and where he stayed until 1969 when he left school, and where he was to later admit that he'd been sexually abused at. He drifted from manual job to manual job after leaving school working from time to time as a packer, a labourer and a security officer, also earning money by mending cars and collecting scrap metal. Though he'd already begun to earn the majority of his income as a rent boy and through the proceeds of petty crime. Around this time, Bailey was also abusing children that he would babysit for, and by 1973 this had deepened when he was accused of the attempted murder and indecent assault of a seven-year-old girl but confusion over the admissibility of evidence meant that the charge was reduced to possession of a knife. Bailey was given probation for this, though he spent three months in a mental hospital in Kent after the incident. He continued in this vein over the next few years, certainly of petty crime anyway, and by March 1979, one account reports that he was facing trial for burgling a post office near his home in Brook Road, Stoke Newington, after being caught with bundles of £20 notes. The explanation Bailey told police was that he'd been out job hunting when he'd stopped to admire a Rolls Royce that was parked outside Harrods. An Arab in flowing robes had then hurried from Harrods towards the car and stepped from the pavement into the path of a speeding taxi. So in Bailey's words, I grabbed him to stop him being run down and pulled him back to safety. The Arab, grateful for the stranger who'd saved his life, wished him a thousand thanks and took him to the Rolls-Royce 
where he then opened a briefcase and handed over bundles of £20 notes to Bailey before the car then sped away. Yeah, because bollocks like that happens all the time, doesn't it? The outcome of any proceedings to do with this case, or even its legitimacy, are unclear. I've included it here simply because I discovered it while I was researching the episode, and because from the character of the individual, it was certainly well within his criminality to do this, burglary, and it sounds like the kind of harebrained tale that he would have come out with. What is much clearer, however, is that on the 10th of December 1979, Bailey was jailed for five years for a serious sexual assault on a woman. On the 1st of March 1978, the young woman was returning to her flat at the Barbican one night when Bailey, who was working as a security guard on a building site in the Barbican at the time, assaulted her at knife point after he'd accosted her in a lift, had battered her, taken the lift down to the basement, and when here, had raped and buggered her, being arrested for the offence on the 28th of June 1978. Bailey appealed against this conviction, however, his appeal was dismissed on the 25th of November 1980, part of the appeal transcript reading, It was not until 28th of June 1978 that the appellant was arrested and interviewed by the police. He made no real admissions on that day, and he was put down to think about it overnight. On the next day, the 29th, about 24 hours after the first interview, the police again interviewed him, and he then made oral and written confessions admitting all the allegations, except he denied having a knife with him. On the 6th of October, the young woman attended an identification parade where she picked out the appellant after hearing him speak as the man who had attacked her. On the 10th of December, he was found guilty of the offence by a majority verdict of 11 to 1, and the trial was adjourned for a social inquiry report. On 21st of December, he was sentenced to five years' imprisonment. He now appeals against conviction and sentenced by leave of the single judge. By the time Bailey was released from this sentence, in the early 1980s, he'd become known in the locality as Cat Weasel, nicknamed as his unkempt looks and his slight limp bore resemblance to a character of the same name from a 1970s children's television show. Yeah, no, it's not one I've seen at all, it's way, way before my time now. It was also around this time that he met one Lenny Smith, who was then promoting himself as a drag artist nicknamed the Sex Queen of Hackney, who at first became Bailey's lover, and who then over time introduced Bailey to some of his other friends ultimately leading to some of the most unimaginable foulness that British criminal history has ever seen, as we've heard already. There were also reports from around this time of a number of young boys being molested around the Hackney area, and though there is no record of him being arrested and questioned over the assaults, the artist's impression that was published in the local press concerning the crimes bears a certain likeness to Leslie Bailey especially considering the location and when it's compared to the artist's impression that Keith Wielden made of the man he'd given a lift to with Barry Lewis. As I say, no charges were ever raised against Bailey for these, but you have the location, the description and the predilection for him to certainly 
be a high suspect in the assaults. However, it will never be known. As we've also heard, Bailey was cooperative with police following his conviction, his confessions leading to a semblance of justice for Jason, Barry and then Mark, and landing himself two life sentences in the process. By October 1993, just a year into his second life sentence, he was one of about 100 Rule 43 prisoners, those who were segregated from other inmates because they can be subjected to violence, on B-Wing in Whitemore Prison in Cambridgeshire, a wing that's entirely separate from the rest of the high-security establishment, housing mainly Category A inmates. Bailey was always going to land here, having been under constant threat of death since he was first jailed in 1989 over the killing of Jason Swift, though these threats had mounted in 1991 when he was also convicted of the murder of Barry Lewis, and then the following year, Mark Tilsley. On Thursday the 9th of October 1993, that threat escalated big time. 40-year-old Leslie Patrick Bailey was found dead in his ground-floor cell on B-Wing when warders made their lock-up checks just before 8.30pm, the end of a free association period where inmates were allowed to move around the wing and visit each other in their cells. Segregated prisoners eat and socialise separately, and Bailey had been on his own in a cell during this evening association time. The makeshift ligature that had been used to throttle him was found in the cell, where his body lay on the bed. There were no other signs of a struggle. As the following day, whispers echoed around the corridors of Whitemore Prison's B-Wing as news of Bailey's death spread that he'd been slowly choked to death, like his victims. An officer who'd been part of Operation Orchid was quoted as saying, We're better off without him. If you're looking for a deterrent to crime, Leslie Bailey had it last night. Who could say that if released, he wouldn't have harmed more children? He was evil. Mark Tilsley's father, John, meanwhile, told how he would like to congratulate Bailey's killer, saying, If I found out who strangled him, I'd shake hands with him. Whoever did it, did a good job. They saved the government and the taxpayers a lot of money. A life for a life, as it says in the Bible. That's the way it should be. We wanted capital punishment for him anyway. At an inquest opened in Wisbeck Coroner's Court on October the 19th, Coroner David Morris was told that medical and laboratory tests performed by Dr Nat Carey, a home office pathologist, confirmed that Bailey's cause of death was strangulation by ligature. Andrew Barclay, the prison governor, told the inquest that Bailey had been threatened during his time at the jail and as a result was held in a special wing along with other vulnerable inmates. But despite having been threatened, Bailey had been quite settled over the last few months. Plus also, you can't hang yourself and then take the noose off and leave it on the bed, can you? Coroner David Morris returned a verdict of unlawful killing. Following the ruling, Detective Chief Superintendent Roger Studley was quoted as saying, Should I feel sorry for him? I can't be sorry that he's dead after what he did to children all his life. But in some ways, I had respect for him because he was the only one with the guts to stand up and admit what he'd done. 
that was more than the others could do. I suppose there should be some compassion for him. Most child abusers have been victims themselves and are simply repeating what has been done to them. I don't know about compassion. I think personally you give up humanity when you do things as has been described through the Ark. And I'd probably go the way of John and Lavinia Tilsley, as Lavinia described years later. When they killed him in prison, I opened a bottle of Plonk then, because I was so pleased that they'd got him. Or even Jason's father, Sid Swift, who said, following the inquest, he got what he deserved. That might sound callous, but that's how I feel. He got what he deserved. Understandable reactions, I'm sure you'll agree. On the 5th of July 1995, inmates John Brooks, formerly John Cairns, and Michael Kane, both of whom were already serving life sentences for murder, were convicted of Bailey's murder, believed to have been committed in a bid to avenge Bailey's victims, and both received further terms of life imprisonment. Denying their guilt, it was 14 years before Kane confessed his part in the prison killing of Bailey, admitting that he'd acted as a lookout while his associate John Brooks went into a cell to beat and strangle Bailey. Kane told a psychologist that he had held the belief for many years that Bailey was not a victim because of the nature of his crimes. By 2013, Kane was still incarcerated as a Category A prisoner, as double murderers usually are like, and had appealed to the High Court after complaining that prison authorities had refused to downgrade his Category A prisoner status despite him having served 26 years already. Though Mr Justice Stadlin said Kane was to be commended for his belated admission of responsibility for Bailey's murder, and his willingness to address his offending behaviour, he refused to downgrade the status even though he recognised his ruling would be unwelcome to Kane, when the hearing was reminded that Kane had only confessed four years previously to his part in Bailey's murder. Now, the sentencing in 1995 had triggered a stark difference of opinion between the Lord Chief Justice of the day, Lord Taylor, and the then Conservative Home Secretary, Michael Howard. Lord Taylor said that Kane and Brooks's minimum sentence should have been 14 years, but Howard said it should have been 25. Now, Brooks is not reported upon, perhaps having accepted his sentence, but Kane's minimum prison term was due to expire in 2010 and parole board officials had still not recommended his release. However, in June 2013, High Court Judge Mr Justice McDuff settled the debate when he ruled that Kane must serve at least 15 years, a tariff which had long since expired, and which meant that Kane would now be allowed to apply for parole, though Mr Justice McDuff emphasised to Kane that he would only be freed once the parole board was convinced he posed no further danger to the public, and explained that once released, he would remain on indefinite life licence, meaning he could be recalled to prison at any time if he commits any further offending. As a double murderer, he'd been first sentenced to life imprisonment in 1987 for the murder of a shopkeeper during a robbery. It's unclear as to whether today, Michael Kane is released from custody, it can only be ascertained that for the past nine years, he's been able to apply for parole. 
So we've seen here a couple of recurring themes. We've seen individuals, I can't bring myself to call them people, released who should have really never seen the light of day again for their wicked crimes. And we've seen public reaction when it's discovered who lives in their midst, protests, demonstrations and the like. We've also seen extreme justice served on one of the gang, although frustratingly, and I hope you know what I mean when I say this, but the one that had he still been alive, there was always the chance that over the years he could have spoken to another cellmate, much like he did with Gab and Adele, and said something, anything, some snippet that may have led police to another lost boy. Though it's unlikely, because Orchid tried their best with him when it was fresher in his mind, and I do believe that he helped them then to the best of his ability, with nothing found, but there was always that chance, however slight, that's now gone forever. There are, of course, another couple of monsters we have but barely mentioned here, and their tales will come the next time around, those that I've saved for the second part of this segment, and deliberately named Worst of the Monsters, and which I shall wind up here now and put the finishing touches to, for it will be with you in a couple of days. I would love as ever to hear your thoughts and feedback based on the accounts I've brought you here today, which you can do so through any of the show's social media links, you know where to get in touch with me by now, or please do in the thread that is now up in the show's Facebook discussion group. All that remains for me to say then, until we speak again soon, is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing all of you good and safe times, and to keep your loved ones safe. Thanks very much for joining me in the MOG. Take care all, and goodbye for now.